Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. It is a spectacular day here in the greater Twin Cities. And for people like us who live in the state of Minnesota, we welcome these days big time. So thank you for uh, spending time with me today. If you are more of a podcast listener, welcome to your evening or whenever you listen. Always glad to have you uh, checking out the podcast at myfaithradio.com. As always, I've worked hard at this show, getting it ready just for you. And today I'm going to start with Beverly Canaris. We're going to talk about some of the challenging statements of Jesus. And Dr. Cal Beisner is going to join me. We've got a very interesting discussion. I'll, I'll wait for him uh, to talk to you about it because uh, you're not going to want to miss this. And then Dr. Mark Muska with Ask the Professor. That's in hour two. But today we're going to talk about uh, some pretty interesting, challenging questions that Jesus uh, said. And Bev is a former Bible study fellowship teacher, and she's also a Bible uh, mentor, and she loves to talk about God's Word. Bev, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So let's get into this uh, challenging statements of Jesus. Yeah. You know, so often when we're reading the Bible, we might read something that Jesus said, and right away we just get this big question mark in our brain, and our brain wants to go accept or reject, accept, reject. <laughs> Sometimes we hit reject. We just, we don't understand mm-hmm. it, so it must not uh, relate to you, or it must be wrong. Um, but I think we really need to realize when we come to some of these statements of Jesus and the way that he taught, to really realize, and I had to do this for all the 30 years that I was teaching the Bible, I had to say, okay, the problem's not with the Bible. <laughs> the problem's really with my understanding. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about two very short parables that Jesus taught that really catch my attention and have my entire Christian life. And I... I had to look into them several times because you kind of forget over time. Now, what did that mean again? And so I've had fun kind of reviewing these two little parables that can be quite quizzical, as I like to call them. Um, So often these statements or these little teachings, parables of Jesus, they really are downright shocking. And what happens is we take them out of context as well. We need to look at what was taught before and after them in order to understand them better. Um, so many of these bold statements or teachings are really counterculture. So again, that's when our brain goes, goes accept, reject, accept, reject. Um, and perhaps it's really making us question relevance for today. You know, we can argue in our head again, well, Am I going to accept this teaching? Do I understand it? No, it's not relevant for today and just move on. But all of the Bible is relevant for today. It, in some way, either it's pointing to Christ in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's showing us the way to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it all means something, but we just need to be disciplined and to look for that meaning. So we're going to look at two of these statements by Jesus, and both of them are parables. I would even call them illustrations is how we would determine what they are today in um, in modern preaching. One is about wineskins, and the other one is about duty. 
So listeners, maybe you know these little parables I'm talking about, but I'm going to read them to you because they're very brief. And we'll go over each one, putting them in context, and then we're going to talk about the relevance for today. And we're going to see that they're not so quizzical after all, that the there is meaning there and it's an important meaning and we don't want to miss it by just brushing it off and saying, don't get it, move on to the next thing. So let's start with taking a closer look um, at Luke 5, verses, starting verse 36. So this is a very short parable he told them, and it goes like this. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into old wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, this parable has uh, not much reference uh, to us today, does it? We don't put a lot of um, patches on our clothes anymore. You know what we do now? Instead of patching, what do we do? Off to Goodwill or give them away? And sometimes I I don't even give them to Goodwill if they need patching. They go in the garbage, right? (laughs) But in these days, people had very few sets of clothing if they had you know, more than one, they were, that was a luxury. So they did a lot of patching. Um, and also we have to realize that we don't store our wine and animal skins either anymore. Thank goodness. I'm glad we've moved on from that. So what is he saying here? It's hard to relate to this. Um, first, we have to put it into context in the conversation in chapter five of Luke. Now, this chapter describes Jesus. He is including the common people and the disenfranchised of the culture in his movement. Jesus calls his first disciples. Who did he call? He didn't call the elite religious leaders. He called fishermen. Then he goes in this chapter and he touches and heals a man with leprosy. Again, the disenfranchised. They were forbidden to come into society. Next, he healed a paralyzed man on a mat let down from the ceiling by friends. However, he first tells the man that his sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders, the elite, uh, you know, criticize Jesus, saying that only God can forgive. So Jesus heals the man, showing that he also has the authority to forgive sin. And then this is the really the crux of it. Finally, Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to come and follow him. So he leaves everything, follows Jesus, has this big banquet prepared for Jesus. And so Levi invites all his fellow tax collectors and sinners— quotation marks around that, to a great banquet for Jesus and his disciples. Now, the tax collectors were hated because they were collecting money and their salary was however much they could get out of the people. And they would take the leftover, whatever the the demand of Rome was, they took the excess. So the idea was to get as just squeeze these people uh, in a big way for that money. So they were hated, but these were people Jesus was reaching out to. Now, the religious leaders questioned Jesus on his practice of association with these sinners and feasting with him and his disciples um, instead of fasting in their prescribed way. So that's kind of how they started to object to what Jesus was doing here. He responds by saying that the friends of the bridegroom do not fast while the groom is with them. They will fast later, though. And then next comes this short parable about patching old clothes 
and storing wine in animal skins. He's really responding to the religious elite in their objections of him um, setting up his movement in this way. Now, the cloth really represents two covenants. The old covenant under the law that the religious leaders had taken to impossible lengths. The average person couldn't follow it. And in fact, you know this, Bill, they couldn't follow it either. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. So Jesus is bringing in a new covenant. He's the new cloth. And he would fulfill the law for us by living a perfect life as our representative. Now, the second illustration is like the first in trying to take old wineskins to ferment new wine in. Old wineskins were stretched and they became brittle after they were used. They weren't adequate for the expansion that happens when the new wine ferments. So it would burst Mm -hmm. and the skins would be ruined. So the religious elite were really stuck in their old way, not willing to change. And that's what this parable really means. Um, So here are some takeaway truths for us in this rather unusual parable or illustration. First of all, change is hard. It's hard. And these religious elite had a certain way of, of practicing Judaism that became very elitism. It was a small group. They had power. They had power over the people. They were taking things out of context from Scripture Um, And they didn't want to lose their power, their position, their authority over the people. Um, They wanted to be the authority. So it was very hard for them to accept these kind of changes that Jesus was initiating as Mm. he came into his kingdom. That's so true. Beverly Canaris is my guest. We're talking about challenging statements of Jesus. Uh, That change is hard. That is, uh, those are three words that are so true, Bev. Yeah, isn't it? (laughs) Indeed. All right, so change is hard, and the old wineskins were stretched, and so these (laughs) elite, really, these religious elite needed to be stretched as well. We want things, don't we want things the way they've always been, because that's what? Comfortable to us. Mm -hmm. The religious leaders didn't want the new covenant that their own Messiah was bringing to them. So this is really a sad statement, but you know what? We're not... We can do this, too, in our Christian life. We can hang on to our pre-Christian life and behavior and are unwilling to change. We know that this maybe isn't what Christ is Christ's best for us, but there's an unwillingness there to change what God is calling us to change. Being a Christian involves experiencing major changes in our lives. Receiving Christ as our Lord and our Savior He is now to who we are to look for, for truth, and who we are called to obey his truth. So, the gospel is good news. Christ didn't come to patch up our old life. He came to bring us a new life, eternal life, that begins here and now. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at that? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And we shouldn't be hanging on to anything in our pre-Christian life. (laughs) Because the transformation of the Holy Spirit regenerating us should be liberating us from the power of sin in our life. And we should be celebratory that we're not living that way anymore. Exactly. But it's not easy, is it? No, it's not easy. Let me take a short break. Beverly Canaris is my guest. We're talking about challenging statements of Jesus. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. 
My guest, Beverly Canaris, taught Bible study fellowship for over 30 years, still loves teaching, mentoring, uh, and we're talking today about challenging statements of Jesus. We are a new creation, and we are becoming that new person in the process of sanctification as we are cooperating with the indwelling Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. I bet there's an application in here, Beth. Oh, yes, there's an application. Because as we look at this parable of the patching the the material and then the new or old wineskins, we need to realize that he came, Christ came to bring us new life, eternal life. He's not here to patch up our old life. We have to look at ourselves as a new creation in Christ. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of the first Bible verses I memorized, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. So in Christ, we are a new creation, and we are becoming also a new person in the process, like you said, sanctification. Sounds like the name of a podcast. It, it certainly does, doesn't we it? We are becoming. <laughs> yes. Yes. She is becoming. She is I don't becoming. know where I heard that before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so, But we need to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. So we have to adjust to this idea that we are going to be constantly changing, evolving. Hopefully, we're constantly changing. Because if we're not, we're not really maybe following the Holy Spirit work that he wants to do in our is life. Is it called obedience? That would be a good way to put yeah. it. Right to the yeah. point, Bill. We're, I like that. Well, I mean, if we're still choosing to live in sin, then we're not following Jesus. No, we're not. Yeah, right. And our faith is to be questioned. So, listeners, have you received Christ or that new life in him? And where are you being transformed day by day? Or are you resisting change out of fear or pride? You know, you know best, your way. We can be very stubborn in our as people, and but we need to be putty in the Lord's hand and in the Holy Spirit's hand so that we will accept change or we'll end up like these Pharisees, um, hard-hearted towards Christ. Well, now the second parable, this quizzical parable, as I've, I'm calling them today, is in Luke also. It's, also. it's in Luke 17, and let me read it to you again, another short little um, story here that has a quizzical meaning. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing and looking after the sheep. Will he come to the servant when he comes in from the field and say, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, as before, we have to look at the previous content to understand this because this can give us a a distorted view of what Christ was really saying here. In chapter 17, he warns about causing another one to sin and the consequences of that. That is, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Um, Then he teaches on the other side of that coin how we're to respond when someone sins against us. If they sin, you are to rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them, even if they do that seven times a day. Now, that's not, you know, meaning start counting and doing a little check mark, and then at eight, you don't have to forgive. What he's really saying here in this teaching is it doesn't need to be measured. It's be generous as Christ is generous with us with forgiveness. So that's the point of that teaching. The apostles respond to this teaching saying, oh, increase our faith. 
Jesus responds with telling them, if they have faith of a mustard seed, they could say to this tree, be uprooted, thrown into the sea, and it will obey you. But now he, then he goes to this parable, the illustration of the duty of a servant. The disciples were, are actually questioning Jesus' teaching when they said, you know, give us more faith. I think here the disciples were really in their mind saying, oh, the standards are just too high here. But Jesus teaches them that they are the minimal duties of a follower of Christ. A mindset we often miss is that God does not owe us for faithfully following him. We are forever indebted to him, and anything we do to serve and follow him is only doing our duty. Excellent point, Bev. But now listen, today, duty is a dirty word. I I know. But it's a beautiful word. Yes, we're accountable to God. He's not accountable to us. Exactly. You know, we just rebuff this thought that we have a duty to God. We often turn that on its head and demand, God, you have a duty to us, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Duty sounds unpleasant. And God here seems like what? Is he a taskmaster? You may be thinking, is this the same God as the father and the prodigal son who was all mercy? It's the same God. It's the same God. But we need to remember this very important truth. We are dependent on God's mercy for anything that we have. It's not because we're wonderful people that God sent his son to die on our behalf so we could have life. It's the opposite. Our proper response to such a demonstration of love for us that Christ would come die for our sins, take our punishment in the place, and then promise us to have a clean, wiped clean record and to live with him forever. What a a demonstration of love. That should create in us a lifelong dedication to him. Our obedience to give to him is expected without any reward than what he has already given us. He's already given us the greatest gift. Uh, Yet, yet, The Bible does promise rewards because he is just one generous God. Now, God is so loving, compassionate, and caring for every detail of our life, but God also disciplines those he loves. God is creator, and we are the creation, which means that God has absolute authority. It means our absolute dependence. There was, when I was looking at this parable, there was a couple of quotes I just have to share with you. One of them is this. Only with God's good hand and strict bridle, think of take my yoke upon you, Mm -hmm. can the soul be helped to give its best. So we need the goodness of God and we also need the discipline of God in order to have uh, us be transformed into the best what God has made us. So as a Christian, servants of God, we need his discipline as well as his loving grace. And here's the second quote. It's so good. And you said it really, Bill. God owes us nothing. We owe God everything. Like the slave in the parable, we can take no credit for any good we do, for it is God who gives us the power to do it. So really, this really eliminates all pride in our serving. We are only doing what absolutely the gospel demands of us to to live this way. You know, just think about the military. Your commanding officer has put his life on the line to protect and guide you. He goes in, he marches in first. He takes full responsibility for each life. In return, then, you willingly follow his orders, and it would be treason if you don't. 
just me personally, I've, I've had similar thoughts like this. Um, I remember walking in to teach Bible Study Fellowship one week, and it had been a hard week, and I was exhausted, and I felt a little sorry for myself. I kind of would, some days I'd look at the janitor, and I would think, I want to do that job. He can come up here and speak. I want to do that. So as I'm feeling some self-pity, all of a sudden I felt convicted, and I realized this is such a privilege, and I started to repeat this to myself. Anything and everything for my king. Anything and everything. So anything he asks and everything that I do for my king. Do you know, Bill, I still repeat that to myself today. It gets my mindset on duty and on his generosity and what he has done for me on him and off of myself. That's the mindset I need in order to serve God. We don't serve God as a favor to God. We serve God as a proper response to what he's done for us. Um, so you know, we just have to ask ourselves, are you, am I doing our duty faithfully? And I, I think we need to bring this word back. Um, Such we, a good word. Isn't it a great word? It's a are, great word. Are we serving in the power of God? And do we see serving and obeying him a privilege? Or are we committing treason by not doing our duty? Think of that renegade soldier who is just fallen out of line and puts everyone at risk. And the, the, the purpose of the captain is not going to be accomplished. So I hope that this really clears up some of those questions on some of these parables that can be quite quizzical. I'm going to walk away for sure in my brown paper bag today. My little take home yes. <laughs> is anything and everything for the king. Yeah especially when I start to feel a little sorry for myself. I'll think of when you were feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah, it's typical of how we think. And again, I think that another important point here is God doesn't owe us anything. Mm -hmm. And that that just is so counterculture because we put all the demands on God. mm -hmm. Prove yourself, show yourself, do this for me. That's not what this parable is teaching us. Mm -hmm. He's the king, he's the creator. And we are subject to him. Yeah. And, and again, I thank you for bringing the word duty to our attention because I think it's a great word and I don't think we talk about it enough. No. And I've used it before, even in my own uh, uh, talking about things like uh, caring for my mother. I consider that a sacred duty. Absolutely. I wanted to do it. So. Absolutely. And it was sacred. It was because you loved her, Bill. Yeah, exactly. And. If we love the Lord, we're going to take on that duty as a sacred duty as well. Yeah. So I love the word duty. I'm going to think about that some more. Thank you, Bev. That's really good. It's been a joy. Yeah. Thank you. I got a nice comment from a listener too. Uh, said something like, uh, Beverly Canaris is always such an inspiring guest. I always come away from her segments with some new spiritual or biblical insight. Oh, Isn't that nice? Very, very kind. Yeah. Encouraging. Thank yeah, you, listener. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Cal Beisner is going to join me and we're going to talk about how green evangelicals imperil the pro-life movement. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Dr. Cal Beisner is the president and founder of the Cornwall Alliance. He and a bunch of colleagues who paid much more attention, much better attention in school than I did, formed an incredible uh, organization. You can learn more about him and his colleagues at CornwallAlliance.org. I recommend you going there. He's always got some great offer as well. Today we're going to talk about something that I find fascinating, how green evangelicals imperil the pro-life movement. Cal, welcome. Thank you very much, Bill. Glad to be back with you. Nice to hear your voice again. So... I, recently, I think there, not recently, but in the last several years, environmentalists have portrayed um, certain of their causes as an intrinsic to the pro-life movement. Now, I found that interesting, and I knew you'd be able to talk about it. Yeah, and it's both recent and going on for years, uh, well over a decade, as a matter of fact. Um, probably the chief proponent of this kind of thinking is an organization called the Evangelical Environmental Network. That organization is a part of the much larger National Religious Partnership on the Environment, which was founded in 1993 and 1994, co-founded by the late Carl Sagan, the atheist author of uh, or host of uh, the Cosmos <laughs> TV series, who was fond of saying the Cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. <laughs> and <laughs> he knows better uh, now. James, yes. James Parks Morton, the dean of the Episcopal Cathedral of St. Uh, of, uh, pardon me, the Episcopal Cathedral of St. Christostom. Uh, that's not right. Anyway, uh, in New York City, who annually held baptismal services for animals from the New York, the, the Brooklyn Zoo. Okay. Uh, and uh, these these two fellows started the, the National Religious Partnership on the Environment, funded largely by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rocker, Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, Tides Foundation, and various other uh, very definitely left-wing foundations. So EEN is the uh, professedly evangelical arm of that. And EEN and various others began over a decade ago saying, hey, look, environmental pollution, environmental problems, those are a proper concern for pro-life advocates because, after all, they threaten people. Well, the, the term pro-life was founded in the 1970s. That was when it was coined. And if you check all the standard dictionaries, they all define it as opposition to abortion. In abortion, every successful abortion results intentionally in a dead baby. In environmental pollution, what you get is the accidental harm to people, usually nowhere near death, uh, and certainly not intentional. So there's a there are two major ethical differences between abortion and environmental issue uh, risks. The first one of, one of them is that in abortion, the intent is to kill somebody. In uh, abortion, too, the result is death, not a relatively minor reduction in health. In environmental problems, 
The intention, for example, in uh, producing energy for our lights and electri- our, our electricity, our lights, our heat, our, our uh, uh, refrigeration and so on, or fuel for our vehicles, the intention is for that energy to serve human needs to improve hum- human health and longevity. And to the extent that there are negative side effects, those are unintentional. So just simply as a former professor of ethics, I saw these claims and I thought right away, uh, real problem here. All right, Cal, uh, great start. And I do find it interesting how they're going to try to this environmental, uh, evangelical environmental network. Um, they're trying to, first of all, I think they want to have calling for 100% of America's electricity to come from renewable sources. And they're saying that some mm-hmm. of the consequences of fossil fuels is causing harm. Uh, and you say that the harm that is caused is uh, really hard to determine. Well, some of it's hard to determine. Some of it is re- relatively easy to determine. Most of it is pretty slight compared mm-hmm. with the benefits that come from those fossil fuels. You know, it's fossil fuels that provide 85% of all the energy human beings use in the world today. That energy is absolutely essential for all of the work we do. In fact, some of us might remember from back in our middle school days when in our basic science course, we learned that energy equals the capacity to do work. Well, you know, work is what we have to do to produce food, clothing, shelter, transportation, communication, medical care, all the things that <laughs> that lift us out of basic, uh, you know, hunter-gatherer sort of uh, society in which average human life expectancy at birth was about 27 years into the kind of prosperous societies we have now where uh, because of industrialization, average human life expectancy around the world is now about 70 years and in highly advanced countries about 80 years. That seems to me to be a really good thing. And it essentially all chalks up to we couldn't do that except because of fossil fuels. So the way they're approaching this, they're looking only at the harms that come as the unintended side effect of fossil fuels. And they're ignoring the benefits that are the intended result of the use of fossil fuels. That's kind of like saying, well, I'm not going to take this medication uh, to to solve my heart trouble, my heart uh, malfunction, because it has the unintended side effect of making my skin itch a little bit. Yeah, I mean, every time you see a commercial for some medication on TV, if it's a 30-second commercial, the last 22 seconds is the disclaimer as to what could go exactly. wrong. Exactly. Yeah, right. So when we when we forget that life is full of trade-offs and we think, okay, all I need to do is to look at the harmful side effects and not at the very helpful intended effects, then we can be led to some serious uh, mistakes in terms of policy. And that's what has happened over and over again uh, in terms of the environmental movement and its opposition to fossil fuels and and to various chemical uh, resources that we use, to the use of plastics and, and so on. 
So, Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. Uh, Cal, what are some of the 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 chemicals that people fear are going to be uh, causing problems for young kids? Well, uh, the Evangelical Environmental Network launched an entire campaign on mercury and uh, its effect on children. And in that campaign, they claimed that uh, mercury was was causing mercury that was emitted largely from coal-fired power plants was causing uh, very serious harm to uh, unborn children, children in the womb, and that this was uh, something that needed to be taken care of by by reducing the mercury emissions, which basically in many instances meant closing off the coal-fired power plants. The problem is, as we pointed out in a paper that we published called The Cost of Good Intentions, The Ethics and Economics of the War on Conventional Energy, no harm has ever been detected at any level of mercury in the bloodstream below 85 parts per billion, which is over 14 times the dose that EEN claims is harmful. Mm. And that's a level that studies indicate is not found in any American babies, even at that level. The observable harm, that that level of above 85 parts per billion, uh, even at that level, the observable harm is not death or even grave impairment, but a temporary, almost undetectable delay in neurological development. It's, It's so small, Bill, that it's overshadowed by normal variation. It's less than one IQ point. And it disappears in nearly all the affected children by age seven. Hmm. So this is not this is not by any means a risk of death. It's an extremely tiny risk, uh, and it doesn't even occur in any American babies because there are no American babies with that level of of mercury in the bloodstream. Yeah, because I can't afford giving up any IQ points, Cal. Well, I don't think any of us wants to do that, but, you know, frankly, a point or two doesn't make much difference. Is the strategy, though, to scare people? Because all an expectant mother needs to hear is uh, the coal-fired plants will produce mercury, and you're going to have trouble with your your baby as of right now, the unborn baby. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, In one of EEN's publications about this, they they said that uh, mercury fish consumption advisories are still in place in all 50 states, and at least 200,000 children remain neurologically impacted. (laughs) Now, remember what that actual neurological impact is, I just mentioned, uh, each year from mercury exposure. Now, what does it mean for mercury fish consumption advisories to be in place in all 50 states? Well, a fish consumption advisory may refer to may may apply to one particular location in a state, a small lake in, in northeast Tennessee, for instance, or a small stream in southwest Florida, or something like that. That doesn't mean that the that fish in all our waters all over the the country are contaminated with with mercury. Furthermore. As the EPA's own studies showed, you would have to have, 
a, a non-existent population, <laughs> you would have to have uh, women who are, since we're talking about the the impact on babies in the womb, right? And only only women, only women have babies in the womb. Okay, that's that's not debatable. Uh, <laughs> you would have to have uh, fisher women who consume over 350 pounds of self-caught fish from waters with the very highest mercury levels in the country to uh, preserve, to, to produce these results, the results that the EN fears. The problem is there are no such women in America, period. Mm-hmm. Wow, so just keep keep people afraid. That's the goal. That's it. Yeah. yeah. This is this is why um, back in in uh, uh, I think it was about uh, 2012, uh, over 50 pro-life leaders, real pro-life leaders, signed a call to protect the unborn and the pro-life movement from environmentalist deceit. A declaration by concerned pro-lifers, and in it they said, "We call on all environmentalists, evangelical or otherwise, to cease portraying their causes as pro-life, and join us in working diligently to reduce and end abortion on demand in the United States, which has killed over 54 million babies. That was at the time; it's now around 60 since the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision." Sad to say. EEN has not abandoned its deceptive tactics mm-hmm. and it continues to undermine the pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. Cal, what, what is happening at the Cornwall Alliance? I know you always offer something pretty sweet for listeners. What do you have for us this time? Yeah. Well, actually, we, we, uh, we have a wonderful short book called How Does the uh, Creation Care Movement Threaten the pro-life movement how does the creation care movement threaten the pro-life movement and uh right now any of your listeners who go to cornwallalliance.org slash donate and make a donation of literally any amount doesn't matter how small and request how does the pro how does the uh, uh creation care movement undermine the pro-life movement we will as our way of saying thank you send them a free copy of this and 100% of their gift will be tax deductible. So that's cornwallalliance.org slash donate. And all they really need to mention is how does the pro, how how does the creation care movement undermine the pro-life movement? All right, let's take a little break. We'll be back with Dr. Cal Beisner in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill Arnold and it's real easy to say thank you. So thank you. But after the spring fundraiser, I'm really inspired by your generous obedience to Christ. You are acting according to the love in your heart and your urgency to have the gospel go out and for men and women to be discipled, cared for, loved, and encouraged the best we can do here at Faith Radio. So I start with thank you and end with thank you. I'm back with Dr. Cal Beisner, and I, I love to uh, collect the sky's falling headlines. Uh, I'm sure, Cal, you're amused by those. <laughs> Let's see. Um, oil, in 1972, the oil will be depleted in 20 years. I thought that was interesting. 
right. 19- That's why we've had no oil since 1992. <laughs> right. Uh, 1978, no end in sight, 30-year cooling trend. Um, I love this one. The uh, New York's West Side Highway will be underwater by 2019. Um, and didn't happen. That did not happen. The art, the Arctic, will be ice-free by 2018. It just goes Doesn't on happen. and on. There's, there's one yeah. sky is falling headline after another. Yeah. All of them, of course, are related to fears about global warming, and the Evangelical Environmental Network uh, calls global warming a pro-life issue. Uh, in a document that they put out, or a statement uh, back in March. They said, as pro-life evangelicals, we agree that our children are precious and must be defended from the threats imposed by leaking poisons emitted from oil gas production like methane. Methane, they go on, is over 80 times more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 in the first 20 years and a major contributor to global warming and climate-fueled extreme weather. Rising temperatures pose the threat of heat illness and death during heat waves. Now, uh, Bill, there are <laughs> several problems with this. Uh, first of all, it, it treats relatively small odds of relatively minor risks from environmental pollution and global warming, the same as the very high odds, 100%, of a major risk, death, from abortion. But also, it, it looks only at costs, specifically of heat waves, not at benefits of global warming. And for three reasons, greenhouse gas driven global warming will actually greatly reduce risks from temperature, not increase them. The first of those is that greenhouse gas driven warming happens primarily at higher latitudes, that's toward the poles, primarily in winter, and primarily at night. So it raises colder temperatures much more than it raises warmer temperatures. Hmm. And consequently, it should reduce the frequency and the intensity of, of cold snaps much more than it increases the frequency and intensity of heat waves. But cold snaps kill, on average, 20 times as many people per day as do heat waves. Mm -hmm. So even an equal increase in heat waves to the reduction in cold snaps would result in a 20 times reduction of temperature-related deaths. And then finally, the fossil fuel-generated energy from which the greenhouse gas emissions come enables them to people to protect themselves better from extreme heat and cold and any other extreme weather than without that energy or with more expensive, less reliable energy from wind, solar, and other renewables. And one of the most um, important facts for us to get into our heads about all of this is that over the last hundred years, the average number of human deaths attributable to extreme weather in any given year has fallen by more than 98%. That's because of the prosperity that we have that allows us to protect us from natural disasters. Uh, and that prosperity is largely attributable, attributable to our use of fossil fuels. People in poverty, Cal, seem to have, they're in the worst situation with the reduction in fossil fuels. Absolutely. You know, it was the use of fossil fuels that enabled the developed world to grow out of poverty. And right now, the developing world needs to do the same thing that we did 100, 150, 200 years ago. And unfortunately, environmentalists all over the world are standing in the way of their doing it. They're, 
the, the, the kind of policies that they want to fight global warming will slow, stop, or reverse economic development for billions of people around the world. How many of us would be happy to live completely without electricity? And yet there are about 750 million people in the world who do. How many of us would be happy to have access just to very unreliable electricity, maybe for about three or four hours a day? You can't predict when it's going to come. And it is so unstable that it can burn out your, your computer any given time. How many of us here in America would be pleased with that? But that's what about 2 billion people in the world live with. Wow. Those people desperately need cheap, reliable electricity. And that doesn't come from wind, because it's not always windy, or solar, because it's not always sunny. It comes from fossil fuels and nuclear. Cal, how is America doing with the production of clean energy? Are we producing clean energy? We sure are. Um, Every single air and water pollutant that is related to energy production has fallen drastically over the last 50 years. Uh, and it, they've, they've all continued to fall. We've adopted processes such that, for example, from coal-fired power plants, the only air pollution, <laughs> call it pollution if you want to, the only stuff that we send out into the air is two things. One, water vapor, and two, carbon dioxide. Hmm. Now, water vapor is the most important greenhouse gas. It accounts for something on the order of 85 to 90% of all greenhouse warming. Carbon dioxide is number two, accounting for perhaps about four and a half percent of greenhouse warming, global warming. Um, But water vapor is really important for other things too. It's what turns into rain and allows plants to grow. Uh, Carbon dioxide is important for other things too. It is the elixir of life. Plants use it in photosynthesis. They absolutely have to have it for photosynthesis. And the more CO2 is in the atmosphere, the better plants grow. Uh, This is is basic, basic science. And to, to scare people about CO2 and water vapor emissions is uh, anti-scientific and certainly uh, not good policy. What it does is uh, drive people toward embracing policies that, in fact, are going to kill people. Mm-hmm. Cal, what is the uh, temperature change over the last 20 years? Oh, over the last 20 years, it would be probably about one quarter of one degree Celsius. Uh, and that's based on the fact that the satellite uh, temperature data, global temperature data, indicate that the average increase per decade since the beginning of the satellite uh, monitoring era, which was 1979, has been 0.13 degree per decade. So give it two decades, call it 0.26. In other words, a quarter of a degree Celsius. A quarter of a degree Celsius in the last 20 years. Right. And if you right. pay attention to any kind of headlines or listen to any kind of news stories, you're thinking that the world's going to come to an end in the next five years. Oh, yeah. Uh, Time magazine just ran a, a, an article <laughs> um, that, that says that the world is sizzling. I Just out of curiosity, I, I Googled to find out, at what temperature does water sizzle? <laughs> what did you find out, Cal? Yeah, the answer is 410 degrees Fahrenheit. 
That's pretty warm. That's sizzling water. That's that's doggone hot. Yeah, that (laughs) really is. No place in the world is sizzling uh, other than on people's stoves or in furnaces, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there has been some real benefits from a slight increase in terms of growing crops and letting people uh, have longer growing seasons and all of that. Absolutely. We've expanded the range in which we can grow crops uh, higher and higher latitudes and higher and higher altitudes. Also, for every doubling of CO2 uh, concentration in the atmosphere, you get an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures and in wetter and drier soils, and they make better use of soil, soil nutrients. Uh, that means that they improve their fruit to fiber ratio and they resist diseases and pests better. Mm, that's... And that means more food for everything that eats plants or eats something that does eat plants. <laughs> yeah, I like greatest that. beneficiaries around the world are the poor Yeah, because they need less expensive food and more of it. Yeah. Cal, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. It's always nice to hear your voice. Well, thank you very much, Bill. It's always a pleasure to you be bet. with you. Yeah. God bless. Yeah, Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest. Head over to cornwallalliance.org. He's got a lovely offer about a new book, a donation of any size, and he really meant that, any size. We'll get you a copy of it, cornwallalliance.org. After a short break, my friend, Dr. Mark Muska is going to be on the program. I call this our Ask the Professor I think I've got some really hard questions for him. I I think I'm going to stump him about five times today. I can hardly wait. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.